Now tonight, you're going to have to track with me in your Bible or you're going to get lost. So again, remember how I told you you should use that study guide. Sort of have it open on one side, have your Bible open on the other side, and you can follow with me through through your Bible as we as we go through tonight. Catch this, the whole book of Mark. The whole book tonight. Everybody's going to leave with a t-shirt that says I ate the whole enchilada. <laughs> Tradition has it that Mark's gospel was written to the Romans. The Romans were a type A culture. They were a quick-paced people who placed a premium on performance. That's why Mark depicts Jesus as the consummate man on the move, the man who never loses touch with his purpose and his priorities and yet accomplishes much along the journey. Mark opens his epistle, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, remember Matthew and Luke, they elaborate on Jesus' birth and his genealogy. John opens his gospel with a discourse on Jesus' pre-incarnate relationship with his Father in heaven. Those three writers seek to nail down Jesus' deity and substantiate his claim as Messiah. That's the purpose for the genealogy and for John's introduction of the Word. But Mark sums up his deity and his messianic claims in a single sentence. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Christ, or the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark then jumps straight into the action. If you're a busy person, Jesus is a Savior for you. He managed a busy lifestyle. Mark begins with the ministry of Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist. John was Malachi's messenger. He was the voice Isaiah heard crying in the wilderness, make straight the ways of the Lord. In rapid succession, Mark begins to cover Jesus' baptism, his temptation, his early preaching, his call of Peter and Andrew, James and John, Jesus casts out a demon and he heals Peter's mother-in-law all in Mark chapter 1. True to form, the first chapter of Mark reels off events that take Matthew eight full chapters to cover. Mark pictures Jesus as the man on the move, but the man who never loses touch with his purpose and his priorities. Jesus' ministry is ramping up. He's kicking it into higher gear When in verse 33 we're told, the whole city was gathered together at the door. Imagine the whole city gathered on the front porch. Understand, Jesus' growing popularity created a serious problem with crowd control. In verse 43 of chapter 1, when Jesus heals a leper, notice he strictly warned him, See that you say nothing to anyone. Now, that's a tough command. You've just been healed of leprosy and you can't tell anyone? You want to climb the rooftop. You want to shout God's praise. But over and over in the book of Mark, we'll see that Jesus tells the people that he healed, the demons that he cast out, not to tell anyone about him. And here's why. Look what happened in verse 45. When the leper went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, 
but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every quarter. For the rest of his ministry, Jesus is going to be fighting the crowds. He's going to be aware of and having to manage the huge crowds that flocked around him and pursue him. Now, here's the picture of the Messiah that Mark reveals to us. His ministry is a whirlwind of activity, but that ministry always revolves around a calm and peaceful center. You see, see, Jesus got things done without becoming undone. And there were two reasons why. First, notice in chapter 1, verse 35, it says of Jesus, In the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Jesus spent time with God on a regular basis. He rose early in the morning. He found him a quiet place, a private place, to refuel his spiritual tank. He filled up in the morning and he ran off high-octane fellowship the rest of the day. We run down, guys, because we don't fill up. Do you take some time? Do you rise early in the morning and set yourself apart to seek the Lord? We need to mimic Jesus. He got things done without becoming undone, and that's how. The second thing Jesus did, though, is he refused to let others dictate his schedule. Throughout the book of Mark, we see Jesus operating on his own timetable, according to his own plans. Divine priorities, not public pressure, guided Jesus. Rather than cater to the crowds, as we said, he tried to avoid them. And here are two lessons for us. Fill up every morning. Renew your fellowship with God. Then focus in on God's priorities for you. That's how you ensure that you won't fizzle out. Fill up, focus in, and you won't fizzle out. In chapter 2 of the book of Mark, a paralytic is brought to Jesus. The house is so crowded that the entryway is barred. So the man's friends lure their buddy down through the roof. We all need friends with intercessory faith who will bring us to Jesus when we're weak, too weak to come to him ourselves. We need friends who have faith to bring us to Jesus Christ. The faith of this man's friends get him to Jesus, but it's his own faith that causes him to be healed. And the real miracle is not just that he walked away having been healed, but the real miracle was that his sins were forgiven. Jesus walked along the seashore, and he saw a man that was despised by others, a hated tax collector. And he looked into Levi's eyes, and he said, follow me. And Levi left all and followed Jesus. Tax collectors hang out with pretty shady people. That night, Levi, or as he came to be called Matthew, throws a party. And he invites his shady friends to meet the light of the world, Jesus Christ. As it turns out, and this is good news for us, any friend of Levi's is a friend of Jesus. Guys, never forget, it was said of Jesus that he was a friend of sinners. Our Lord Jesus is not interested in the so-called well and righteous. No, he seeks out and loves the sick and the sinners. At the end of Mark chapter 2, Jesus follows David's example and ignores the religious traditions in order to satisfy human needs. Besides, if Jesus made the rules, who's to say he can't break them? And in verse 28, he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. As Christians, we have been set free from the law. 
to live for the lawgiver. Chapter 3 records a showdown in the synagogue. On this particular Sabbath, a man with a withered, gnarled up, crippled hand, arthritic hand, had come to the synagogue to worship. The Jewish leaders knew that it was Jesus' habit to heal. And the scrutinizers were looking on. They were interested in hanging Jesus on a technicality. It's interesting, rather than rejoice over a man set free from a physical infirmity, they were looking for Jesus to break some little iota of their law. You need to take note of this. You miss the heart of God when you are more interested in doctrinal details than in divine deliverance. Verse 5 tells us that Jesus got mad at these hard-hearted Jews. It says he looked around at them in anger. Hey, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is not the Jesus of the Bible. The real Jesus knows how to get mad. Mad at unrighteousness, mad at prejudice, mad at bigotry. The blood that would be shed in mercy on the cross here boils in anger. Jesus tells the man to stretch out his hand. Notice, that is an impossible command for a crippled hand. And yet, his healing depends on his faith. For as soon as the mental impulses shoot down the nerves to his hand, as soon as they go from brain to his appendage, the withered hand suddenly is made whole. It begins to work. He reaches it out. A miracle occurs. Sometimes God asks us, to do impossible commands. It requires faith. We have to trust God that, yes, we'll do it, and when we get to the point of doing it, the power will be there for us to perform it. Jesus heals many. He casts out demons. In verse 11, the demons do what the stubborn Jewish leaders refuse to do. They acknowledge Jesus' deity. Jesus warns, though, the evil spirits to keep quiet. He doesn't want demons in charge of his public relations. You see, the fact that these demons were cast out spoke for itself. The kingdom of Satan was crumbling. Jesus had bound the strong man. He was now going out and taking the plunder. Guys, the strong man is still bound. It's up to us to go out and take the plunder. In chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus multiplies his ministry by sending out 12 apostles. And here's the roster, the starting 12, you might call them. There's Peter. There's James and John, who are nicknamed Boanjernes, or sons of thunder for their volatile temper. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, who was formerly Levi, Thomas, another James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot, the betrayer. Jesus equips his starting twelve with power over sickness and Satan. In chapter 4, the mysteries of the kingdom are revealed. According to the parable of the sower, What's needed for God's kingdom to grow is the seed of God's word along with the fertile soil of a repentant heart. You see, growth is the result of the spiritual life in the seed, not in the skill of the people who toss out the seed. The power is in the seed itself. When the seed lands by the street, Satan steals it away. When it lands on stony ground, it never takes root. It doesn't grow. When it lands among the thorns, it gets choked out. And Jesus explains, it's Satan. It's our own superficiality, our own shallowness. It's secular pursuits that oftentimes get in the way of God's Word bearing fruit in our life. What the seed of God's Word needs is fertile, repentant hearts 
who will accept it and let it grow. Verse 31 says that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It's small. It's insignificant. It keeps a low profile. It grows beneath the surface, under the radar screen of the world's attention. But one day, it'll grow into a great tree, and it will shelter the nations. You see, the kingdom of God is for now an invisible kingdom. The King Jesus reigns in the hearts of men. God's spiritual kingdom affects human institutions only as it affects humans in those institutions. You see, the king will establish his own institutions when he returns to earth. For now, his goal is to save men, not salvage the world systems. At the end of chapter 4, Jesus proves that he's king over all the universe. He calms a fierce storm. And notice in verse 35, Jesus tells his disciples, let us cross over to the other side. You see, that was the key. Jesus told them that they would cross over, not go under. And Jesus has made the same promise to you tonight in the trial that you face. You're not going to go under. You're going to cross over. Are you trusting him to calm the storm in your life? In chapter 5, Jesus arrives on the shore of the Gadarenes and is welcomed by a wild man. This man's body is the home for a den of demons. But even these demons are obedient to the Son of God. One word from Jesus and the demons are evicted. You see, apparently, demons desire a body to inhabit. Humans are preferable, but pork chops will do. You see, Satan wants to be like God. Your body was made to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit. But evil spirits will take up residence if you spurn Jesus' salvation. The delivered demoniac, he wants to tag along with Jesus, but his witness will be more powerful to those who know his past. And you know, the same is true for us. Guys, the first place to shine your light is among those who shared your darkness. They'll see the change. They'll see what God's done in your life. And they'll embrace the Messiah for themselves. Miracles occur on both sides of the sea this day. Jesus pushes through the throngs of people on his way to work more mercy when a woman, this woman's been hemorrhaging for years, she reaches up with a fistful of faith and she grabs the hem of Jesus' garment. Virtue flows from him and a healing takes place. Jesus calls this woman out of the crowd. He challenges her to go public with her faith. When Jesus has his way, secret saints become public witnesses. Jesus continues to the home of a desperate dead with a deceased daughter. Even death is a minor technicality for a miracle-working God. Jesus raises the dead girl. Wow. Can you muster enough faith for Jesus to work the miracle he wants to work in your life? Perhaps the greatest miracle, though, was what Jesus expects of the girl's father. Notice in verse 43, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know. You gotta be kidding. He just raised my daughter from the dead and I'm supposed to keep quiet about it. Remember, Jesus was constantly fighting these crowds, constantly trying to just be able to move around without creating upheaval wherever he went. Speaking of where he went, in chapter six, he returns to his hometown of Nazareth. Where's the ticker tape parade though in Nazareth? People are following, crowds are gathering everywhere he goes, but not in his own hometown. Why is that? Doesn't Jesus deserve the keys to the city? Here's the homeboy coming back home. 
Why isn't there a crowd greeting him? You see, the problem was is that their hearts were filled with unbelief. You know, here was their logic. Isn't this the son of Mary? Isn't this Joseph's boy? Didn't we play in the sandbox with him? Weren't we on the same little league teams with this guy? Who is he? Verse 6 tells us Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. Too often, familiarity will become a hindrance to faith. Jesus sends his disciples out two by two. He gives them, gives them great authority, but scant provisions. A man of God can lose his anointing if he doesn't live by faith. And so Jesus makes sure that they walk the walk, that they each day trust him for their basic provisions. The scene shifts to King Herod. King Herod lived a selfish lifestyle. He and his bogus bride, they lived an outback steakhouse mentality. No rules, just right. Herod and Herodias, they made their own rules, and they became irritated when John the Baptist kept reminding them of God's rules. Herodias wants the head of her biggest headache. Herod feared John, but his lust and his pride lured him into a trap. John's head on a silver platter would have seemed like the end of his problems, but Jesus takes John's place as the conscience of the nation. When the disciples returned to Jesus from their missionary endeavors, we're told in chapter 6, verse 31, that he tells them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. Again, the crowds, the hustle and the bustle. But understand, Jesus knew how to manage the hustle and the bustle, the busyness of life. And the way he handled it was he made time to get alone with God. And here he invites his disciples to join him. Guys, taking time to rest. It rejuvenates the juices. It restores the vision. It revives your faith. The revived person can accomplish much more than the perpetually pushed. What kind of person are you? Do you need to take some time? Maybe even an hour, an afternoon, and get alone and spend some time with God. To appeal to the Roman mind, Mark points out Jesus' organizational abilities. Notice in verse 39, we're told that before Jesus feeds the 5,000, he subdivides the masses into smaller groups for easier distribution. Jesus feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, but his power to work miracles doesn't exclude our responsibility to be organized. Never assume God is against organization. Rather, don't agonize, organize. Because Mark happened to be Peter's protege, it is assumed that the book of Mark was actually Peter's version of the gospel story. And this could explain Mark's omission. For when you read chapter 6, verses 45 through 51, you find that in Mark's account of Jesus' walk on the water, You'll notice that he leaves out the fact that Peter also walked on the water until he took his eyes off Jesus and began to sink. It could be that an embarrassed Peter sort of just left that part out of the story. <laughs> it's included in Matthew, but it's not in Mark. 
In chapter 7, Jesus ignores Jewish tradition. The priests and the rabbis, they had concocted thousands of stipulations. They had placed their rules on a par with God's law. And many of their traditions had proved counterproductive. In trying to keep the traditions of men, people often disobey the commandments of God. Guys, I think so often we get lulled into this same trap. We need to discern between what is God's law and what is human tradition. So often our relationship with God can become boring. It can become flat. And we don't know why. It could be that tradition has stifled your faith and your trust in God. We need to weed through the traditions and hang our hats on God's truth. Verse 15 tells us that sin doesn't slide down the throat. It's not in what you eat. When a man is defiled, it's an inside job. Abstinence doesn't always reflect repentance. Just because you don't smoke or don't drink or don't cuss doesn't mean you're living a holy life. Sin is more than just actions. What about your attitudes? Sometimes our attitudes can reek and can be dirty. Jesus healed in different ways. At times, his methods were bizarre. In chapter 7, verse 33, Jesus heals a hearing loss and a speech impediment by sticking his fingers in the man's ears and spitting on his tongue. You know, I think you'll find that God's methods are as varied as the people that he heals. Just about the time you think you've reduced divine power to a formula, God will find some other way to do the work. He's always surprising us. The only common denominator to God's healings are our faith. In Mark chapter 8, the people are enjoying a three-day Jesus festival. There must have been some southern firefighters in the crowd because verse 3 tells us that some of the people came from afar. If you didn't get that the first time, you can get it on the tape. It was really a good joke. Jesus works a miracle. He uses seven loaves and a few small fish to feed 4,000. In chapter 8, verse 23, Jesus does a miracle. He heals blind eyes. And then in verse 25, he asks a miracle. Jesus doesn't want this man to tell anyone about his healing. Again, can you imagine? How does a man just delivered from a sightless existence not tell anyone about it? Peter and his disciples know that Jesus is the Messiah. But they don't like to hear him talk about sacrifice and death and the cross. But Jesus tells them at the end of chapter 8 that not only is a cross in his future, but there's a cross in their future as well. You see, guys, the terms of discipleship are tough. You've got to deny your selfish interests. You've got to learn to give yourself away. You've got to take up your cross on a daily basis. We must be willing to follow Jesus where he leads, and he always leads us to the cross. What good is it to climb society's scaffold, to live for yourself, to gain the world's accolades, then lose your own soul? It's a question Jesus asked his disciples then, and he asked his disciples today. In chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured. His flesh is peeled back so that his glory shines through. On the mountaintop, Jesus is seen as who he is, the Son of God. He appears in all his glory. And the three musketeers 
Peter, James, and John, they want to pitch tents. Let's just stay here for a while. Hey, let's tune out the world. Let's tune into God. But understand, God's purpose in granting this mountaintop experience and the mountaintop experiences in our life is not so that we can tune out the world and it's not so that we necessarily can tune into God. Rather, it's always a tune up for the battle we're about to face. And that's exactly what happens when they walk down the mountain. They face a battle. And make no mistake about it, Satan has only one purpose for your life, and that's your destruction. That was certainly his plan for the young boy that was brought to Jesus. The father asked the Lord if he can help his son. Jesus asked the father, can you believe? You see, the question is never, can the Lord do it? The question is always, do we have the faith? And verse 24, I love it. The father shouts out. It's a very honest confession. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. How many times have you ever said that? That's our prayer so often. This is proof that the power is not in the strength of our faith, but it is in the object of our faith. Sometimes we can barely believe that Jesus will respond to that little bit of faith we might muster, and He'll work the miracle. And in this case, Jesus drove out the demon and He lifted up the boy. Jesus is now regularly reminding His disciples of His destiny. He'll be executed. But He will rise the third day. When the events actually occur, we wonder if the disciples had ever heard him mention them in the past. They're so surprised. He goes on and he prepares them for the coming trials, for the cross that's before them. He reminds them that God's kingdom is made up of servants, people with the heart of a child. His kingdom is broad enough for men not associated with each other to work together. Mark chapter 9 verse 40 tells us, for he, is, he who is not against us is on our side. God's kingdom is also obtained by men who take sin and its consequences seriously, who are willing to cut out the sin when necessary. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to overcome sin in your life? The law regulated divorce. Moses gave instructions concerning divorce, not to encourage it, as the Jews supposed, but to discourage it. God's commandments were a concession not a requirement. And Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, teach us that God's ideal for marriage is a lifetime commitment between a man and a woman. Verse 5 says that our ordeal is caused by our own stubbornness, the hardness of our hearts. Soften your heart toward your spouse. Here's a good piece of advice for all you married folks. Every marriage is made up of two sinners. A good marriage is made up of two forgivers. Learn to forgive your spouse. Chapter 10, verse 11 and 12 tell us plainly, divorce a spouse for an unbiblical reason and marry another, and you've committed adultery. Hey, your marriage vows are serious business. In chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus informs an ambitious, a prosperous, a religious young man, that he has an idol in his life. You see, this guy keeps the commands, but he won't relinquish control of his life. Jesus peers through his religious veneer 
and he sees what separates him from God. Money has become his idol. He needs to give it up. But the man walks away with his hands full and his heart empty. You see, riches are a barrier to some people, maybe to many people, but not all people. And I think each one of us does have our own barrels that God must help us jump over. Whether it's money or whether it's something else. We need to take heart, though. Even the impossible becomes possible when we repent and when we believe. In chapter 10, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. He's just days now away from the cross. In light of the crucifixion, the disciples' hopes, their dreams are about to crumble. They're about to be dashed. In verse 30, Jesus assures them. Yes, they'll be rewarded in time and for eternity for the sacrifices they've made to follow Him. In verse 39, Jesus prepares them. They'll all be asked to drink a cup of suffering. And in verse 43, Jesus reminds them, whoever desires to become great among you must be, your, must be a servant. At the end of chapter 10, we find old Bartimaeus, blind Bartimaeus, begging beside the road. He lives in darkness. His eyes are blind, but he hears that the master is walking his way. And he fights through the crowd. He screams for mercy. The people around him tell him, oh, shut up. But he refuses to give up. And Jesus rewards his persistence by opening his eyes. Please, whatever you do tonight, don't you dare shut up. You keep crying out and calling out to Jesus, and he'll reward your persistence as well. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus rides his donkey into Jerusalem to the cheers of the crowd. They shout, Hosanna, save us now. That's why Jesus came to Jerusalem. He is dying to save them, not politically, though, as they had hoped, but spiritually. Now, when you say temple, you should think pray, not pay. <laughs> but the chief priests, they had corrupted the temple worship. They were making a buck off God. And Jesus does a little spring cleaning. He cleans house of the priestly bandits. The next day, Jesus curses a fig tree. And he teaches the power of prayer. Notice chapter 11, verse 23. Whoever prays, and catch this, notice the phrase, and does not doubt in his heart, will receive. But notice the key. It's to believe and not doubt. The key is faith. The one thing that can interfere with our prayer is unforgiveness. And Jesus tells us in verse 25, whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Don't let an unforgiving spirit block the power of your prayers. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus teaches a parable that illustrates Israel's attitude toward him. God owns a vineyard, and the Jewish leaders are the caretakers. The prophets are the servants sent by the owner, but mugged by the Jews. The owner's son is Jesus. You'd expect him to get better treatment, but they kill him hoping to steal the vineyard. Justice is the parable's point. The takeover will not succeed. The owner will bring judgment. The vineyard will be taken and given to Jesus' disciples for them to tend. That's what happened to the kingdom of God. In the remainder of chapter 12, the chief priests, they match wits with Jesus and prove to be 
dimwits. The Jewish leaders try to argue the Bible with its author. That's never a good idea. First, they ask Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. If Jesus says, pay him, he's a traitor to the Jews. If he says, don't pay him, he's a rebel against Rome. Either way, they think they've got him. They finally trapped him. Jesus, though, holds up a coin inscribed with the image of Caesar. You see, every man also carries an image on his person. You were created in the image of God. And Jesus' point is this. Give to Caesar his money, but give to God your life. You belong to God. A woman was married to seven men while on earth. Who will be her husband in heaven? Jesus tells them the only marriage in heaven is between God and his people. Here's the third question. What's the greatest commandment, Jesus? And he answers them in verse 31. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Love Him with all you've got. And then, love your neighbor as yourself. All three questions were an attempt to back Jesus into a theological corner. But with each question, Jesus turns the tables. He exposes their biblical ignorance. He even initiates a question of his own. The Messiah is David's son and David's Lord. How can that be when the king's only boss is God? The answer is that the Messiah, Jesus, is the God-man. He is both God and Lord, but he is also man, the son of David. Jesus is between firing these salvos with the chief priests. When he sees a widow dropping her meager little offering in the offering box, she gives all that she has. And Jesus compares her pennies with the lavish offerings given by the rich folks. And he surprises everyone in verse 43 when he says, This poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. Guys, the size of an offering is not measured by the amount that's given. It's always measured by the amount that's left over afterwards. The temple was an impressive structure. The huge marble stones, the gold siding, caused the Jews to swell with pride. Well, in chapter 13, Jesus predicts a day of judgment when not one stone will be left upon another of that temple. Some 38 years later, the Romans would raid Jerusalem and they would reduce to rubble this source of Jewish pride. But the destruction of the temple was just the beginning of Jacob's trouble. Jesus goes on, world wars, earthquakes in various places, famines, plagues, persecution will be followed by an onslaught of judgment on a scale that the world has never seen. When the Antichrist stands in the rebuilt temple and deifies himself, he'll push God's patience beyond the brink. Divine rage will then fall fast and furious. Jews living in Jerusalem will flee to the wilderness. The Antichrist will seek their extermination. Celestial signs will signal the coming of Jesus, his second coming. He'll come in power and in great glory. The angels will gather the scattered Jews together and bring them home to Israel. And then he says, when you see the fig tree blossom, it's a sign that summer is near. Likewise, the generation that sees these signs will be the last generation of this current age. Make no mistake about it. We, you and I, 
are living in the last days. A day will come. God will begin soon to purify the Jew and persecute the world. You see, for now, the church is being persecuted and purified. But in the great tribulation after the rapture, God will persecute the world and will purify the Jew. Are you ready? Before all this comes down, the church will be lifted up. No one knows the departure time. That's why we need to wake up or miss the lift off. In chapter 14, Jesus celebrates Passover with his disciples. During his last supper, Jesus not only identifies his betrayer, but he leaves behind his last will and testament. Jesus had no gold or silver to bequeath, but to those who believe, he leaves behind something of far more value. He leaves behind a new covenant and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus sets his face now toward the cross, but his disciples are oblivious to his pain. They snooze while he agonizes in prayer. They boast of their loyalty to him. And then before the night is done, they all deny him and forsake him. Jesus is even ambushed by the deceitful kiss of a supposed friend. You see, the road to the cross is fraught with heavy disappointments that could have caused him to give up. Yet Jesus was committed to his mission. And do you know why? Because he loves you. It's because he saw beyond the pain and the rejection. And he wants you to be his child. In Mark chapter 15, I'm sorry, in verse 71 of chapter 14, Peter denies the Lord. He overestimates the good intentions of his flesh. As Peter says in verse 38, a little earlier in the chapter, the spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. I think we all can relate. Peter that night crowed of his loyalty. But then he eats crow. And we learn from Peter that we need to trust in the spirit, not in our flesh. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus continues on his path to the cross. The Jews are done with their humiliations. Now they turn Jesus over to the Romans for crueler treatment. Jesus answers Pilate with an eloquent silence. The governor knows better, but to appease the Jews, he passes the buck. His mistake has been duplicated by folks throughout history. You can't pass the buck when it comes to Jesus. Jesus deserves a personal verdict from the soul of every human being. The Romans taunt. They torture Jesus. Their scourging reduces his back to ground round. Then the soldiers force him to lug the crossbeam up the hill called Golgotha. As his beaten body buckles under the weight of the timber, a bystander is recruited to help. Stories abound that Simon's inconvenience led to his conversion. He bore the cross for Jesus. In just a few moments, Jesus is going to bear the cross for him and even for the whole world. You see, the cross was the cruelest form of punishment, of execution ever imagined by man. We may wonder why the cross was chosen for the atoning altar. Why not a more humane means of punishment? Something that would do the job, but without the pain. But understand, God chose the cross, for on the cross, Jesus got what you deserved. 
Jesus suffered and died. He was even separated from the Father so that we could be accepted. A centurion looked on that day in faith and believed. Three days later, many more will believe. Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. The women attending didn't consider it a decent burial. Their preparations had been rushed to beat the Sabbath deadline. That's why they return on Sunday morning. Mark chapter 16 opens as the day breaks. On the way to the tomb, notice the women are worried. If they can move the tombstone and finish the job, how often do we worry about problems that God has already solved? When the women arrive, the angel tells them that the news, that tells them the news that literally changes the world, that Jesus Christ is risen. Understand, Christianity is more than just moral codes and rules for conduct. Christianity is not just another philosophy. It's first and foremost a man who conquered death, who bounced back from the grave and who lives today. The price for our pardon was paid for on the cross, but the power that carries that news to the ends of the earth is the power of the empty tomb. Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, then to two men on a country road. Jesus met frequently following his resurrection with his disciples. He told them to go and to spread the gospel. And in chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, Jesus lists some miraculous signs that should follow believers. He says, in my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. That was fulfilled the other day when I went down to Wendy's and got some of that chili that they served down there. Understand, though, each of these signs occurs either in the book of Acts or it occurred in the missionary activities of the early church. You remember Paul was bitten by a python. He shook it off into the fire and he wasn't harmed by it. These are promises for missionaries. Now, do I believe that we should deliberately handle snakes in our services? Of course not. That is tempting God. That is foolish. But if I'm on a mission trip out in the jungles of Haiti and I get bitten by a snake, the first thing that I'm going to do is remind the Lord of this verse. (laughs) That's where it applies. Where you're out serving the Lord. These are verses for missionaries who are going out. If they drink something of poison and they're there serving the Lord, God will protect them. If they're bit by a serpent, God will watch over them. These are verses for those of us who are wanting to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. These miracles and more still occur. Miracles have not ceased. We still have a miracle working God working in us and through us. But miracles are no substitute for God's word. Notice Jesus says these signs will follow the message. They won't replace it. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples descended on the world. Verse 20 tells us that they went everywhere preaching the gospel. Mark also writes these words, The Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Isn't that neat, though? The Lord working with them. 
You know, guys, it's one thing to work for the Lord, but what's really exciting is to work with Him. He wants to use you. He wants to lead and guide your life. He wants you to work with Him to accomplish those things in your life and in the people around you that He desires. Father, thank You for Your Word tonight. Thank You for speaking to our hearts. Lord, we thank You for the gospel story of Jesus Christ. It is good news. And we thank You for our Lord Jesus. We love Him so. We marvel at the things He did. We marvel at what He wants to do. And Lord, our cry is like that father who brought his demon-possessed son to Jesus. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Strengthen our faith, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, how's that for uh, the book of Mark in one night? You know, it's one thing to, to go through and study each story, but isn't it neat to kind of go through and get the big picture? Just kind of the big panoramic view. We got it tonight. And, and you know, when I walk away from it, I, I think and I say, man, am I proud of my Lord Jesus. What a guy. <laughs> You're dismissed. <laughs>